Welcome to Beyond Your Newsfeed, Understanding Contemporary Politics, a podcast of the Political Science Department of Providence College. My name is William Hudson, Professor of Political Science and host of this podcast. I've asked back to be on your newsfeed, Professor Adam Myers, the Political Science Department's state politics expert, to discuss the contest for the United States Senate in this year's election. Uh, most of us this year are preoccupied with the presidential contest and who will come to control the presidency this January. But also at stake in this election is control of the United States Senate. Currently, the Republicans hold a 53 to 47 seat majority. Democrats need capture only about four seats to earn a majority. Several Senate contests with Republican incumbents look quite close this year giving the Democrats a shot of recapturing the branch. If they do so, and also win the presidency, we will have a unified democratic government, something we have not seen since 2009 and the first two years of President Obama's presidency. So, Professor Myers and I have a lot to talk about. So Adam, welcome again to Beyond Your Newsfeed. Why did oh, you be with us? Always great to be on, Bill. So though we're gonna be talking about the Senate elections, I think we'd be remiss uh, not to, not on, on today, uh, the afternoon of October 2nd, uh, the day where we heard this uh, rather astounding news that Professor, uh, that President Trump tested positive uh, for COVID-19, uh, that we sh should say a little something about that and maybe a little something about the debate this past Tuesday. Uh, so, uh, Taking up the first point, uh, this uh, October surprise of October surprises of uh, the president evidently being ill with COVID-19. Uh, the, the reports today is that he actually has some symptoms of the disease. Um, so what do you think, Adam, What are, as political scientists, do we have anything to say about this? Uh, any insights? Well, obviously it's a it's an unfortunate state of affairs and you know it remains to be seen how how severe his illness is going to be in terms of the political ramifications i think it's too early to say he's obviously going to be taken off the campaign trail which may have an impact because he likes the, uh, to hold those gigantic rallies with lots and lots of people that's obviously going to be off the table in the next few weeks uh, you know, but beyond that, uh, it really remains to be seen how this plays out. Uh, earlier today, I was speaking about this with some of my students in, in some of my classes, and a number of students, you know, asked, you know, what would ha what will happen to the debate schedule? Um, will they, President Trump and and Vice President Biden, continue to meet in in the uh, upcoming debates? And I actually thought about it, and my view is it would be fantastic if this caused them to transform to remote debate format, because then the moderator could just mute each one of them when, when, when they interrupted each other, you know? And I think that would make for a much more <laughs> productive and uh, meaningful debate enterprise. So that's, that's kind of my two cents about that. Um, and I, so I guess that takes us to your second um, question about the debate. So, you know, I, I'm assuming a lot of our viewers watched it. A lot of our viewers probably noticed that it kind of devolved into this really pathetic exercise of interruptions and bickering and so on and so forth. Uh, I thought it was personally embarrassing 
for the country. Um, you know, millions of people all around the world watch this debate, and this, for them, is what American democracy and American politics currently amounts to. And I thought that was kind of sad. This is the reputation that our country is earning around the world. Yeah, I would agree, Adam. That it, that really was probably the saddest thing about it. That you know, America's reputation as kind of a beacon of democracy is really declined. Uh, and and this is perhaps you know the worst uh, example of of where we've come in our democracy. Uh, it's very, right. very sad. Right. But as far as how it's going to impact the race, my guess is that it won't impact it very much. I mean, the, the surveys that came out right after the debate suggested that many Americans were turned off by President Trump's performance, but I can't imagine that he lost a lot of votes as a result of it. Maybe on the margins, it'll have some impact. Uh, but look, I mean, four days later, we're talking about something entirely different. So, you know, my guess is that the shelf life of this is going to not be very long. Yeah. Although I imagine some of Trump's advisors probably would be happy if the future debates were canceled, um, that that they they clearly other Republicans clearly were unhappy with Trump's performance and, and wouldn't want that repeated. Um, and certainly by not having debates. And, you know, he's not in a position now where he has to uh, decline to debate. Uh, he has a very good excuse uh, not to debate, and uh, I don't think any of us would would at all uh, uh, expect him if he he and his health advisors think it's not a good idea for him to debate to be uh, to, to fault him at all for that. So, um, I think that's probably true. On the other hand, I think if Trump just took a somewhat less aggressive posture in these debates, you know, didn't interrupt Biden so often. Uh, didn't bicker with the moderator as often, he could probably win these debates fairly easy, easily because as we've seen, you know, Biden is not that effective as a debater. And, you know, to be perfectly frank, when he's not bickering or interrupting, Trump actually comes off as more articulate than Biden, I think. So these debates, I, I believe that Trump could use them to his advantage if he would just take a slightly different approach. I, I agree with that. In fact, I thought, you know, aside from the bickering, you know, Trump really looked more forceful uh, than Biden and, and in, a, in a way, you know, sort of dominated the, the stage. Uh, and and it, it, had he only been able to, you know, talk without the interruptions and, and the insults, uh, he really probably would do better. But I don't know. I don't think that's Trump. I mean, I, I don't doubt that he's capable of, of that. Um, right. That's so, probably true. So, uh, so anyway. Okay. So I think the bottom line here is that as political scientists, uh, we really don't know uh, what's going to happen. Right. Or what, <laughs> uh, uh, we, we certainly aren't health experts and uh, we, we can't really say much about what the implications of all this is going to, to be. We'll just have to wait and see uh, what happens. Uh, so why don't we uh, talk about Senate races, uh, where political science might have some, some insight at this point. Uh, to start us off, Adam, could you just remind us, give us the, the mini uh, intro American government lecture about how senators are chosen and how many senators are up for reelection this time and, and all of that? 
Yeah, so I think as most of our listeners know, the Senate is composed of 100 members, two from every state, and all senators serve six-year terms, but their terms are up for election in a staggered timetable so that every two years, a third of Senate seats, usually 33 or 34, are up for election. This year, the number of Senate seats up for election is slightly higher than usual because there are two special elections in Arizona and Georgia to fill seats that were briefly left vacant following the 2018 elections. And so this year we have a slightly higher than normal number of seats up in the Senate. Okay, and uh, the Republicans are defending more seats than the Democrats. Uh, it's probably obvious to most of our listeners, but, but you wanna explain that? Why is it that the, the Democrats are advantaged this time? Right. So of the 35 seats that are up for election this year in the Senate, 23 are currently held by Republicans and only 20 or, or excuse me, only 12 are currently held by Democrats. Um, and so the Republicans are playing defense and the Democrats are playing offense. And the basic reason for that is, is that the Senate seats that are up this year were previously up in 2014. 2014 was a big Republican year. Um, and so many more Republicans won Senate races that year. And as a result, um, the Senate races that are up this year tend to have Republican incumbents or um, they tend to be currently held Republican seats. Yeah, an irony of the election structure, right? So if you do well in a year, uh, six years later, you're gonna be disadvantaged because you're defending more seats. Exactly, yeah, that's uh, one of the many ironies of our constitutional structure. Yeah, okay. Uh, so uh, why don't why don't you just run us through some of the states that you think are uh, most interesting this year and ones we should be paying attention to? Right. Well, let me just reiterate something that you mentioned earlier, Bill, which is that right now Republicans have 53 of 100 Senate seats. So technically, what that means is the Democrats only need, only need to pick up three seats in order to take the majority, as long as Joe Biden wins the presidency. Right. Because if Joe Biden wins the presidency, then the vice president becomes Kamala Harris. Under the Constitution, the vice president is president of the Senate and casts tie-breaking votes, including tie-breaking votes regarding organizational structures. So if there were a 50-50 Senate with 50 Democrats and 50 Republicans and Biden won the presidency, then the vice, vice president Harris would cast the tie-breaking vote, giving... Democrats, uh, majorities on the Senate committees and so forth. So in order to get a majority in the Senate, Democrats need to pick up only three seats if Biden wins. But of course, if Biden doesn't win, uh, they need to pick up four seats. Um, the other thing to bear in mind, though, is that um, there is a, a seat that's up this year that almost everybody anticipates is actually going to flip from Democrat to Republican, right? That's the Senate seat in Alabama. Um, currently held by Doug Jones. A lot of our listeners might remember several years ago, Jones surprisingly won a special election um, in Alabama to fill the seat previously held by Jeff Sessions, who went on to become Trump's attorney general. Um, most people believe that that outcome was an aberrational outcome. Alabama is a very Republican state. Most experts believe that Alabama will return to form this year and vote out Jones and vote in the Republican uh, candidate whose name is Tommy Tuberville, former Auburn University football coach. So assuming that goes as everybody expects, um, then Democrats would need to take four seats from the Republicans in order to take the Senate majority, even if Biden wins. 
So just wanted to kind of get that out there. That's the state of play. So what are the most likely seats to flip? So I think that most prognosticators at this point believe that the most likely seats to flip from Democrat or from Republican to Democrat, excuse me, are the seats in Colorado, Maine, and Arizona. And so we can talk about each of those individually if you want. Um, after that, I think uh, a lot of commentators think that the most the next most likely seats to flip are in Iowa and North Carolina. And then there's a host of other Senate races in a variety of other places, um, Montana, Georgia, uh, Texas, Kansas, um, that might be sleeper races for the Democrats. So uh, you just let me know, Bill, which of these races would you like me to talk about? Well, let's talk about the first three to, to begin. And uh, I agree with you. I think the recent polls are suggesting that Maine, Arizona, and Colorado uh, are, are really leaning uh, Democratic. Uh, well, let's, let's talk at first Maine, which is close by our neighbor, New England neighbor to the north here. Uh, why is Susan Collins uh, in trouble this time? She's a, a longtime incumbent. Uh, she survived other challenges from Democrats. Uh, what's different this time? Yeah, Maine is maybe the most interesting Senate race this cycle. So as you mentioned, uh, Republican Senator Susan Collins has been there a long time, since 1996, in fact, so 24 years. Uh, and I think she's in trouble this time for a number of reasons. Maine is a state that, while it is marginally a toss-up state, I think it's pretty clear that it has a Democratic lean. Um, Collins has cultivated this image over decades of being kind of an independent, somebody who's willing to buck her own party in the Senate. But the increasing perception among Maine voters is, th is that she's not as much of an independent-minded senator as she says she is. Um, she, for example, voted to confirm Brett Kavanaugh in that highly contested uh, Supreme Court confirmation fight from several years ago. Um, she uh, voted uh, to um, she voted to end the, the, the health insurance mandate and the Affordable Care Act. A number of other things in there, um, in her record, I guess I should say, that kind of has caused a lot of people to believe that she's not as much of an independent as she markets herself as. Uh, her opponent, Sarah Gideon, who's actually a native Rhode Islander, um, born and raised in East Greenwich, uh, is, was the, the speaker of the Maine State House Representatives, um, kind of, is well respected in Maine, uh, widely believed to have had a successful career in the state legislature. Um, and if you watch debates between her and, and Collins, as I did, she comes off as a very effective speaker. I think she's probably the strongest opponent that Collins has had since she was elected to the Senate. Um, polling in Maine reveals that Gideon is consistently leading by between six and eight percentage points, and that's usually outside the margin of error, which is why most commentators believe that the race at this point definitely leans in the Democratic direction. Uh, but Collins can come back. And one thing that's very important to bear in mind about Maine, which kind of throws a wrinkle in all of this, is the fact that Maine these days votes via a ranked choice voting procedure, right? And so rather than vote for one candidate or the other, voters rank order their candidates the, all the candidates that are running for Senate from most preferred to least preferred. And then what ends up happening in a ranked choice voting procedure is that if no candidate is the first choice of a majority of voters, um, then the voters who choose, chose the candidate with the least support um, have their votes reallocated to their second choice. And then the process goes on until a candidate reaches majority support. 
So the reason this is important is because ranked choice voting sort of complicates our, the ability of pollsters to make good inferences about the state of, a, of an electoral race because they have to make inferences about two things, right? Rather than just being concerned about who people are voting for, they have to be concerned about who their first choice is, who their second choice is, maybe even who their third choice is. And that adds a layer of uncertainty to the polling in the main race, which needs to be taken into account. So there, there are other candidates? Yeah, there's four candidates running in addition, okay. in, in addition to Collins and Gideon. One of them is kind of a, a far left candidate. The other one is kind of a more Tea Party conservative candidate. And the polls right now suggest that if you just look at who voters cho choose as their first choice, the race is very, very close. But when you reallocate votes from the lower tier candidates, Gideon's lead expands substantially. But you know, it's hard to know how accurate these polls right. are. Right, yeah, I can see that would be difficult, difficult to poll. Okay, that was that was very interesting. My my one comment here is that if if Collins loses, as you say, she's likely to. Uh, she's kind of the la last of the what we used to call the liberal Republicans or nowadays moderate Republicans in New England. Right, there used to be a sizable number of them. Uh, yeah, Jaffe of Rhode Island, his father John Jaffe, uh, and and one could go on, and then they just uh, she she'll be the last one. It's pretty amazing, you know, 80, 90 years ago, I guess pre-New Deal, I guess I should say, but it was a long time ago, but at that, but before the 1930s, uh, this region of the country that we're in right now, New England, was the country's most Republican region. And now we're facing a situation where there won't be a single Republican senator from all of New England, which is really, from a historical perspective, incredible. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, she's, Collins is probably the final victim of our polarized politics, right? The, right. The sorting of of uh, liberals and conservatives into the different parties. So, uh, well, that's that's a podcast for a future date to talk about. <laughs> to talk about that. Um, okay, just very quickly, uh, Colorado and Arizona. Arizona, uh, McSally was appointed, right, and uh, running against a former astronaut, uh, husband of Gabby Giffords. Uh, who survived an assassination attempt. That's right. So interestingly, McSally is another Rhode Islander. And some of the local Rhode Island reporters have pointed out that we could have a situation in the next Senate where there are five Rhode Islanders in the Senate, in addition to Rhode Island's official senators. Um, McSally, if she wins, um, Gideon, if she wins, and then Pat Toomey from Pennsylvania, who's already there. He's also a native Rhode Islander. That's just a side interest for those of our listeners who are from Rhode Island. But um, yeah, McSally is a former Air Force pilot and House member. She lost the Senate race in Arizona in 2018, but then she was appointed by Arizona's Republican governor to fill John McCain's old seat. She's running against Mark Kelly, former astronaut, former husband of, of Gabby Giffords, the congressman. Current husband, Adam, not, not former husband. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> Did I say former? <laughs> Current former husband. Astronaut, but still right. married to Gabby Giffords. I said some were formers. <laughs> I just mixed another former in there. Former astronaut, current husband to Gabby Giffords. Uh, you know, Arizona is a state that is changing very rapidly in terms of demographics. It used to be very Republican now due to the increase in Latino voters and other factors. It's becoming more Democratic. And the polls in Arizona have consistently shown Kelly with a substantial lead. So, 
okay. And and Colorado, uh, uh, Corey Gardner just is running behind, right? Right. Corey Gardner is a is a one term senator who hasn't made much of a mark as best as I can tell in the Senate. He doesn't have high name recognition in Colorado. He's running against uh, a popular former governor, uh, John Hickenlooper, who maybe some of our listeners will recall briefly ran for president last year um, before deciding to end his campaign and run for the Senate instead. Colorado is a state that is very rapidly changing from purple to blue and polls have consistently shown Hickenlooper leading by about 10 percentage points well outside the margin of error. So of all the states that um, Senate observers expect to flip from Republican to Democrat, that's probably the top one. Yeah. And Hickenlooper, uh, former governor uh, and former Democratic presidential candidate, is doing better than another governor and current governor and former presidential candidate, uh, Steve Bullock up in Montana, right? Bullock seems to be uh, probably going to lose the Montana seat that he's running for. Probably. We don't have a tremendous amount of polling. The polling that I've seen shows a, a pretty close race against incumbent Republican Senator Steve Daines. Obviously, Colorado and Montana are different states, even though they're both in the West. Montana is substantially more Republican. That has the makings of a potential sleeper race. Uh, you know, it, it could turn in Bullock's favor. But at the moment, I'm not expecting Bullock to win that race. I expect that Republicans will keep that seat. Yeah, so that's that's more of a of a long shot for the Democrats at present. So, so let's now you know turn to those very interesting Iowa and North Carolina races. I mean, a year ago, uh, I think I would have said, you know, Tom Tillerson, North Carolina, and Jody Ernst in Iowa would be pretty secure. Uh, that uh, wouldn't have foreseen them being uh, perhaps uh, beaten. Uh, yeah. Do you agree, Adam? I, I, I sort of half agree. I certainly would have said that about Ernst. I would have been more interested in the North Carolina race as of a year ago because Tillis, you know, he's a, he's a first term senator. Um, the seat that he holds has had three different senators since 2002. Right. So Elizabeth Dole won it in 2002, served a single term, was defeated by Kay Hagan in 2008, who served a single term before she was defeated by Tillis in 2014. That shows you just how competitive of a state North Carolina is. And he really has not distinguished himself as a senator over his you know, six-year tenure in the Senate. I think his name ID in North Carolina is, is fairly low. Uh, his challenger, Cal Cunningham, former state senator and army veteran, is, uh, you know, I watched the debate between the two of them, or parts of it anyway. I didn't find either Tillis or Cunningham all that impressive. Uh, you know, neither of them were especially dynamic speakers. Uh, and they're, both of them are sort of vanilla candidates, as best as I can tell. One noteworthy thing about uh, this race is that the Republican candidate who's kind of um, defending his seat, Tillis, he is very closely linking himself to President Trump, which some of the other Republicans in competitive Senate races are not doing. So that's kind of an interesting little quirk there. It'll be, you know, we'll see how well that strategy works in a, in a very closely divided state like North Carolina. 
Right now, it seems not to be working. Polls consistently show that Cunningham is between five and 10 points ahead. Uh, and so it, I, I don't know if I'd call that race lean Democratic at this point, because a number of those polls are within the margin of error, um, or Cunningham's lead within a number of those polls is within the margin of error. But uh, I think that this is a very good chance for a Democratic pickup. And polls are showing in North Carolina that, that uh, Biden is leading in most of the polls, uh, Trump, right? It's pretty close, but... Pretty close. But yes, um, generally speaking, the polls right now show a Biden lead. So, so Tillis's bet on what we would call Trump's coattails may have been a bad bet. Right. Although this is something else that I want to talk about a little later. I, I think a fairly consistent, not a perfect pattern, but a fairly clear pattern in a lot of these Senate races is that the Republican candidates are doing worse than Trump in a lot of the polls. And we should talk about that later. I'm not 100% okay. sure why that is. Okay, we'll come, we'll come back to that. So, so Iowa, so that's the one that's really uh, surprising that Jody Ernst is being challenged the way she is. So how do you account for that, Adam? <laughs> to be perfectly honest, I, I don't quite know what to make of it. So yeah, Joni Ernst won the Iowa Senate race relatively easily uh, six years ago. And it's important to bear in mind that this is a presidential election year and President Trump did very well in Iowa in 2016. Right? Iowa used to be, uh, you know, the swingiest of the swing states. Uh, but four years ago, Trump won it. Uh, by about 10 percentage points. He actually won it by a larger margin than he won Texas. Uh, so that's something important to point out. Uh, it it uh, sort of mystifies me that, that, the, that the Iowa Senate race uh, looks as it does. The polls in it right now have show the Democratic challenger to Senator Ernst, her name is Teresa Greenfield, consistently in the lead. And in fact, one poll that came out several days ago showed her in the lead by 12 points, which is, which is massive. Uh, you know, while I don't really know what's going on, I can speculate about several factors here. Um, one is that Trump's approval rating in Iowa um, has fallen substantially. He's not nearly as popular there that, as he once was. That could have to do with his, uh, you know, trade war with China. Could have to do with a number of other things. Uh, I, I also think that the Affordable Care Act is is playing a major role in the Senate race as it is in lots of other places, right? Uh, Ernst voted to repeal it and it's become very popular in Iowa. But that's, all those things combined, I still don't really know why Greenfield is leading as much as she is right now. Uh, again, you know, this is, this is another example, this is an example of a state where the Republican Senate candidate is doing worse than Trump is, right? Um, Iowa right now, uh, Biden and Trump are locked almost neck and neck in the Iowa presidential election polls, but Greenfield is, is leading Ernst substantially. So clearly Ernst is doing worse than Trump is, and I'm not 100% sure why that's the case. Okay, that's the that's best answer one could give, I guess. Yeah. Uh, so, all right, so, this, this Georgia case, uh, wh why is Sonny Perdue doing so poorly? And, and what, there's, there's a place where I would think uh, the Republicans would have a sure win, but what's happening there? Right. Well, so there's a couple of things to point out here. First of all, there's not just one Senate race in Georgia. There are two this year, right? There's, there's the, uh, the election that would have occurred ordinarily 
right? That's the Senator Purdue election. Purdue was elected six years ago. His term is up this year. Um, and then there's a special election that's being held because the Senator, the other, Georgia's other senators, uh, Johnny Isaacson retired a few years ago, resigned a few years ago, excuse me, and was replaced by Kelly Loeffler. She was appointed to that seat by Georgia's Republican governor. Uh, but under Georgia law, when there's a special election to fill a Senate seat, um, it occurs at the same time as the general election, and it is effectively what political scientists call a jungle primary, where all candidates from all the parties run against each other, and then the top two candidates advance to runoff a month later. So this is what's going to happen in this second Georgia Senate race, right? Two candidates are going to emerge from that race. Could be two Republicans, could be Leffler and the other Republican who's running, whose name is Doug Collins, who's a congressman. And then they will duke it out against each other in the December runoff. Um, the main Democrat who's running right now is a guy named Raphael Warnock, who's the pastor at Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, Martin Luther King's old church. That's, that's the uh, candidate that the Democratic establishment has rallied around. Um, but there's another Democratic candidate. His name is Matt Lieberman. He's actually Joe Lieberman's son. Uh, and Democrats, Joe Lieberman, by the way, being the former US Senator from Connecticut, National Democrats are very worried that Lieberman being there will siphon enough votes away from Warnock to basically deprive Warnock of one of the slots in the runoff election. Uh, and so they've been pressuring him to drop out and so far he's resisted. So, you know, let's, I just wanted our listeners to bear all of this in mind that there's, that that is a Senate race that's kind of lurking in the background right now. Um, but to get back to your original question about the main Senate race in Georgia um, between uh, Senator Perdue and, and John Ossoff, you know, let's just bear in mind a couple things about Georgia. It's a state that like Arizona is demographically changing very rapidly. Uh, you know, many, a, a huge increase in minority voters, both, both Latinos and African-Americans, right? A lot of African-Americans have been returning to the South from the, uh, the big cities of the North, Chicago, New York, and Detroit, places like that. And, and Atlanta is like, kind of the center of the African-American return migration to the South. So the state is changing demographically quite rapidly and most people expect that it's going to be a swing state in, in several years. So um, those factors combined are making Democrats competitive and Purdue, the incumbent Senator, just has not established a very substantial record. He's not all that well known. So that's what I would have to say about what's going on in Georgia. Right, and, and Ossoff ran a congressional race, right? Um, Ossoff? Yeah. Yeah, so a few years ago, there was a, a, a special election in Georgia's sixth congressional district, I believe. And this was right after- Newt, Newt Gingrich's old seat, right? Newt Gingrich's old seat, yeah. exactly, in Cobb County. What used to be the epicenter of Republican politics in Georgia, right? These, the biggest Republican stronghold in Georgia of Cobb County. That's where the sixth, sixth congressional district is centered. And um, Democrats poured a ton of money and resources into that special election in that House district. They wanted to demonstrate to the Republican Party that the, the Democrats were making a, a comeback post 2016. 
It didn't work out that way then, right? Although a year later, Democrats did actually take that, um, that congressional race in the 2018 midterms. Yeah, but it gave Ossoff a lot of name recognition, I imagine. Correct. Positioned Correct. pretty well to be a, 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 an effective challenger. Okay, so actually, so there, there could be a couple of Democratic pickups in Georgia. Yeah, uh, it's, it's certainly conceivable the Democrats will flip both Senate seats in Georgia this year from Republican, to, from Republican control to Democratic control. I mean, I wouldn't bet money on that, but it's not beyond the realm of possibilities. Yeah, that would be, a, be, a, be quite something. Okay, uh, well, let's, let's talk a little bit about South Carolina, which I was just looking at some polls today that, that show Lindsey Graham tied with his opponent. Uh, those are just a couple of polls, and you know, I, I don't want to give them too much credence, but that in itself is South Carolina, that, that Graham would have a competitive race is, is also kind of amazing in this election year. Yeah, well, so look, I do not expect that Lindsey Graham is going to lose this race. However, I would agree with you that these polls that are showing a relatively close race are quite surprising. The thing to bear in mind about a lot of these deep south states, including South Carolina, Mississippi, Alabama, and so forth, is that they have a huge percentage of African-American voters. Now, the reason that in spite of that, Republicans have had a lock on them for so long is because voting in these states has historically been very racially polarized, right? Yes, African-Americans in, in South Carolina and Mississippi make up 30, 40% of the electorate, but white people who make up the majority of the electorate almost all vote Republican. And so you end up getting Republican statewide elected officials. But if Democrats are able to come up with a formula where they can keep all of the African-American vote and peel off you know, a small segment of the white vote, they could potentially be competitive in states like South Carolina. And I think that's what Harrison's trying to do. And there's some reason to believe that he's, he's making some headway in that effort. Now, again, my strong suspicion is that when the votes are actually counted, um, Graham is going to win because he's going to maintain, you know, 80, 90 percent support among white people, white voters in South Carolina. But, you know, I could be wrong. And if I'm wrong, all bets are off. Yeah. Um, and that could connect to Trump coattails. We'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. Before we get there, however, Okay, so let's talk about some other sort of long shots for the Democrats. Uh, Texas and Kansas, uh, how, how reachable are those for the Democrats? Uh, I, I, would, I, I would be skeptical. So Kansas is a, a real bizarre situation to me. It's kind of like the Iowa example that we were talking about earlier on steroids. Here's a state that uh, Trump won by 20 percentage points. And yet some of the polls in the Kansas Senate race are showing a very tight race. Um, now it's important to bear in mind that, that Trump is doing considerably worse in Kansas than he, than he did four years ago. The polls are showing him leading Biden there by about 10 percentage points. So that in and of itself is alarming. I mean, look, Trump is going to win Kansas, but it appears that he's um, going to win it by significantly less than he won it four years ago. So that's part of what's going on. Trump is less popular in Kansas than he was four years ago, and that's reflecting on the Senate race. Uh, but again, 
the Republican Senate candidate in Kansas is doing worse than Trump is there. This is a consistent pattern that we're seeing. And once again, I don't quite know how to explain that, but it's something that's, that's very worth noting, right? I mean, Trump is doing 10 percentage points better than Biden, but the Republican Senate candidate, Roger Marshall, he's running basically even in Kansas with the Democratic Senate candidate, uh, Barbara Bollier. I strongly suspect that this will change by November and that Marshall will win fairly healthily, but you never know. Um, and what was the other race that you were, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, just to follow up, of course, Kansas now has a Democratic governor, I forget her name. And, right. And she came in uh, to office after uh, the uh, kind of disastrous governorship of, of the Republican governor whose name Brownback. So Brown Brownback was the was the Republican governor. The current governor is is Laura Field, or see, not me, Laura Field, Laura Kelly, um, and um, yeah. So what you say is true. So you know we we can go. That, I mean, it could be that the Republican brand was hurt by Brownback in Kansas. Uh, that you know that that isn't affecting Trump, but could be affecting a local uh, Republican candidate. I mean, that's just pure speculation on my part, but. That could be the case. You know, what's, what's interesting about the Kansas race is, is some, of, some of our more politically attuned listeners might remember that a few months ago before the Kansas primary, um, national Republicans were really concerned about the potential nomination of this guy named Chris Kobach, former Kansas Secretary right. of State, major anti-immigration, um, I don't know, activist, I guess, funded a lot of anti-immigration lawsuits all around the country, uh, viewed as an extreme right-winger. Uh, Republicans really worried that nominating Kobach would have handed the election to the Democrats, but then Republican voters nominated the more mainstream Republican um, to the, for the race. And so at that point, everybody thought that the race would be over. Uh, but for now, it seems like there's an outside chance that the Democrat might win it. Uh, I mean, could there be some unhappy Kobach voters? To, that, right. You know, it's hard to imagine they would would desert the Republican Party. You know, uh, but it's possible. Um, you know, I don't have my ears to the right. I don't. I, I don't have my ears to the ground in Kansas. I really don't know. It's a major mystery. Yeah, th those are also the the voters that would probably be most excited to turn out for Trump. So, so it's unlikely that they they would certainly go ahead and vote for the Republican Senate candidate. Right. If they showed up at the polls at all. So so anyway, that's that's another unknown that we have to acknowledge. Uh, so so Texas, uh, there I, I would be surprised that Democrats Yeah. Would uh, that's one that some commentators have put on the radar screen, but I'm I'm very I do not expect the Democrats are going to take Texas. Um, the Republican incumbent there, John Cornyn, has been in the Senate for 18 years. He's running for his fourth term. The Democrats have nominated, uh, you know, a fairly telegenic and articulate Air Force veteran named MJ Hagar. You know, I think there's an outside chance that she could win, but the polls there show Cornyn consistently ahead. So I, I don't see that happening. And Texas is another one of those states that's being affected by demographic change. Uh, there's most people think that it's going to eventually uh, turn blue, um, but that's probably some years in the future. Um, 
I mean, Democrats have been have been predicting that about Texas for the past 30 years, right? I mean, I lived in Texas for eight years, and I remember every election cycle, Democrats would say, this is the year when Texas will turn blue, and it never happened, and it still hasn't happened. I mean, yes, right? I mean, the, the demographic trends have been favoring Democrats there for a long time, and yet they still haven't been able to turn those demographic trends into electoral success. I doubt it'll happen this year. And it's important to bear in mind that Republicans in Texas are very aware of the demographic trends and they're, you know, acting accordingly. They're they're trying to recruit Latino candidates, court Latino voters and so forth. So you never know um, about what's gonna happen um, in a state like Texas. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and do you wanna say anything more about than that Alabama race? Is, uh, we covered that. Uh, I don't have all that much more to say about it. Like I said, uh, most commentators expect that a Republican will win and that it will be a Republican pickup. I know some people out there are saying this this might be a surprise. Doug Jones, you know, might be able to recreate his victory from a few, from a few years ago. And I guess there's always an outside chance of that. Again, just like South Carolina, Alabama has a lot of black voters. And so in theory, all Jones needs to do in Alabama is get all of the black vote and just peel off a little bit of the white vote to win. But uh, I don't really see that happening. Okay, uh, so a lot to watch for an election night and the days and weeks following. Uh, well, and let me race. just mention one other race. I know we've talked okay. about a lot of races, but I do think we should mention the Michigan Senate race because oh, yes. yeah, that, is, yeah, that right. is actually a race that I, 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 that to me has the biggest potential of being the sleeper race of this cycle, simply because it's not getting a lot of attention right now because it would be a potential Republican pickup, right? I mean, right. and, and, and the, almost all of the races are potential Democratic pickups. So that's kind of the way the media is is presenting the Senate cycle this year is just kind of a landscape of all of these potential Democratic pickups. But in uh, Michigan, the opposite is the case. So there's an incumbent Democrat there who's running for re-election named Gary Peters, who's you know been a fairly lackluster um, senator, as best as I can tell. And Republicans have nominated a, a you know African American, a young African American businessman named John James, who ran for the Senate in Michigan two years ago, gave the other Democrat um, in the Senate from Michigan, Debbie Stabenow, a real run for her money. And Republicans are pouring in a ton of money uh, into this race. So Mitch McConnell Super PAC just uh, decided to invest $9 million in this race. They really feel that James has a, a shot. It's important to bear in mind that, um, you know, Democrats are making an all-out effort to win Michigan this year, right? They lost, Hillary Clinton lost it in 2016. And they're really trying to mobilize African-American voters um, in the Detroit area, um, for the purpose of electing Biden. And, you know, I don't know what that means for the Senate race, you know, it's, but I, I certainly think it's possible that African-American voters in Detroit will vote for James, who is African-American and who's been speaking very eloquently about Black Lives Matter and racial injustice and so forth in ways that other Republican candidates are not doing. So I think that's definitely a race that we should be paying attention to. You know, and that might be a very reasonable choice for African-Americans, you know, in Detroit to to elect a sympathetic Republican who could articulate 
uh, the concerns of African-Americans within the Republican Party, which, which seems not to be happening. Right. Now, and, and that certainly would be important for, you know, African-Americans. Uh, uh, and, you know, I think, I think that's something we need to keep in mind in our politics that, that uh, we see everything in partisan terms and make assumptions about how certain groups are going to vote, but, but in fact, that really depends upon uh, what the choices are before them. Uh, and exactly. that is, is relevant in, as you said, in Texas, where a lot of Mexican-Americans Mexican uh, might see some opportunities uh, in supporting Republicans there. Uh, right. They traditionally have, have voted Democratic. So that's something we have to keep in mind uh, as political scientists. Okay, anything more that you want to add about Trump's coattails in any of these races? Uh, uh, you've said a lot about that already, I think. Uh, the only thing that I would, so let me just you know, sort of posit something. I was talking to a friend about this, and he suggested that the reason why all of these Republican Senate candidates, like Roger Marshall in Kansas, like Joni Ernst in Iowa, like several others, are doing consistently worse than Trump might have to do with the fact that right now uh, the Republican base really is motivated by Trump, right? The, in other words, Trump has really right. turned the Republican Party into his party. And, you know, Republican voters are gung-ho about voting for Trump, but some of them appear to be not quite as sure about voting for their party's candidates down ballot. And... Yeah, they may... Certainly... You know, given what we know about the tr Trump's support in 2016, he did pull in a lot of not who we would have considered Democratic voters, right? That was right. why it was a surprise. Right. Uh, and a lot of those voters are Republicans now, for all yeah. intents and purposes. Yeah, they are. But they're Trump Republicans, and that right. might not mean that they're Republican Republicans. They, they, won't, they won't automatically vote for uh, Republicans in these Senate races. Uh, particularly in those, I mean, I really do think in a place like uh, Kansas that uh, the Republican brand may have taken a hit. I know there was so much criticism. I remember so much criticism of of Brownback's uh, education policies and cutbacks in education. Right. Which which may have be something that even Trump voters remember, and that they uh, connect to at least their state Republican Party, and they're willing to entertain a Democrat as they did when they voted for governor. Yeah, I, I think that's a very reasonable hypothesis. And since we don't have much other, uh, since we don't have many other alternative hypotheses right now, I think we're just going to have to go with that one. Yeah, well, I, I, I believe in knowledgeable speculation in political science. Right. But it's not the best, it's not the first choice, but a good second choice if we don't have uh, good data. Right. We can try to hypothesize, I'll say, not speculate, hypothesize. I, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> All right, so do you want to stick your neck out and make a prediction about whether the Democrats are going to take the Senate back? I will stick my neck just a little bit out, you know, by which I mean that I, there are like, so in political science or statistical lingo, I, you know, there are going, there are big, big confidence errors around my prediction. I'm not at all sure of it, you know, and uh, I wouldn't place a lot of money on this bet, but I, I think that Democrats are going to be able to pull this off 
you know, I, I expect that our next Senate will be either 50-50 with uh, President Biden and Vice President Harris casting the tie-breaking vote in favor of Democrats, thereby giving them a majority, potentially 51-49 um, or maybe even 52-48. So my prediction is somewhere in that range. It's going to be a closely divided Senate, I but I think it will have a Democratic majority. But again, I'm not going to place a lot of money on that bet. Right. Another unknown between now and November 3rd, right? The, exactly. Uh, and it's going to be an interesting few weeks. Uh, well, Adam, thanks so much. That was a real tour de force. I think we have a good, at least I have a better understanding of what's going on in these states and a sense of what to watch for uh, when the election comes. Uh, it's certainly going to be uh, very interesting. And I know uh, election night and after, I'm going to pay as much attention to the to the Senate races as to the presidential race. So, so thanks again, Adam, and uh, we'll have you back uh, maybe after the election to tell us what happened, uh, along Sounds with good. a couple of our colleagues. Right. Sounds good, Bill. Always a pleasure. Okay. And thanks also to Chris Judge of Providence, Providence College's Office of Marketing and Communications for his help in producing this podcast. And most of all, thanks to all of our listeners uh, for your continuing support. Please tell four friends to subscribe to be on your newsfeed wherever they get their podcast. Thanks very much.